Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Hello, Rockbrook. Morning. Today we're beginning a new series over the next handful of weeks. We're going to look at this book of the Bible called 1 Peter. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, a book is named for who it's written to. Uh, other times, it's named for who wrote the book. Here, Peter wrote First and Second Peter. This St. Peter is one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles. And uh, just as we approach this, I can't help but think about if, if you could sit down one-on-one with Peter and ask him what was the most amazing experience that you had with Jesus, I wonder what he would say. I wonder what he would point to. Maybe it was the day that uh, Jesus called him from his fishing business to follow him. Uh, Maybe it would be uh, the moment on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw Jesus shining bright, uh, bright white, and he saw Elijah and Moses standing there. Maybe it was the day Jesus was walking on water Peter asked Jesus to call him out to walk with him, and Peter walked on water with Jesus. Uh, Maybe he would say it was the day of Pentecost. Maybe it was the day that God called Peter to go talk to a man by the name of Cornelius. And uh, through that moment, the Gentiles began to be brought into the kingdom of God in a brand new way. Really not sure what Peter would say, but I, I, I actually have a guess, a good guess, Based on what Peter wrote in First Peter, when you read it, you realize that nothing impacted him as much as the day he met Jesus for breakfast on Galilee shores. It was after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples were in Galilee. Peter was not sure what direction his faith was going to take him in those days. And uh, he was out fishing. They see Jesus on the shore. And they have breakfast with the resurrected Jesus. Peter had a personal conversation with Jesus uh, that impacted him for the rest of his life. First Peter is written to, we'll talk more about that encounter in a minute, but First Peter is written to believers in Asia Minor. He's giving them much needed spiritual food. Uh, he was a tremendous leader. He was passionate. He was bold. In fact, when you read his writings in First Peter, he deals with some incredibly weighty topics. I mean, uh, you could just list out the doctrines that he mentions or talks about in First Peter, and just reading that list would, uh, would take time. He's writing to a group of very hurting believers, Christians, and he talks about so many things. But two big themes that emerge from this writing uh, over and over again, we see the hope that we have in Christ and that Christ is calling us to live a life of holiness in this world. You see hope and holiness, hope and holiness, to be, to be different from this world. To give you just a little bit of context today, uh, let's talk about when this was written and, and what was going on in the world. First Peter was written somewhere between 60 AD and 65 AD. We're not sure exactly when, but we know it was within that window. And it was during the reign of a very evil empire or emperor uh, known as Nero. And Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome. The Roman Empire had, at that time, 
much of Europe. It stretched around the Mediterranean, including Asia Minor and Israel. And Nero, along with Rome's first four emperors, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius, they made up a dynasty. And Nero was adopted by his great uncle Claudius to become his successor. And upon Claudius' death in AD 54, Nero became the youngest emperor at age 16, and his reign lasted uh, nearly 14 years. Now, if you don't know much about Nero, let me just paint the picture here. This guy killed his mother. Uh, He had his first wife killed. More than likely, had his second wife uh, killed. History believes that he actually burned the city of Rome. Uh, And what we know is that in July of 64 AD, a big fire broke out. It burned for six days. Uncontrollably, they could not put it out. On the sixth day, they put it out, and then somehow it reignites and gets going again, burned for another three days. Uh, History believes that Nero started this fire, and that he started it because he had an insatiable lust to build and to rebuild, and the Senate would not let him do so, So he burned things to tear them down so that he could build and rebuild. After word got out that he was the cause of the fire, things were not going well for him. So he decided to blame uh, the fire on a group of very uh, passionate, already hated people known as Christ Ones, Christians. Meanwhile, Meanwhile of this fire, the whole thing, Nero, this whole thing's happening, Meanwhile, Christians are being persecuted, but they're somewhat protected under Judaism. And so it it was uh, legal for them to be a a Christian at the time. It's not too dissimilar from places, countries in the world where there's technically on the books religious freedom and Christianity isn't technically outlawed, uh, but it is and people get persecuted for it and and, but So it was like that. Uh, the, meanwhile, that's happening, but the courts are changing now, and they're starting to change so that this already persecuted group uh, could be sanctioned persecution. And uh, it entered them into a season of brutality. And just to give you an idea of how sick Nero was, among other things, he actually put dead animal skins on Christians and then would have them locked in a cage and unleash a pack of wild dogs into the cage and watch the Christian get mauled and destroyed as he would sit there and sip wine, and that would be his entertainment. He would take Christians, dip them in. I mean, you got to understand, these were uh, people who loved their family and loved God, just like you. And he would dip them in hot wax, uh, tie them to a tree, have uh, them and the tree lit on fire, Uh, to be burned as candles to illuminate the sky for his parties. And uh, in this context, that's the context in which Peter is writing. And he wrote the book that we're about to read. He wrote it to a mixture of Jews and Gentiles uh, for people who were lonely and an increasingly hostile world. So who's this sermon series for? This sermon series is for those who are lonely in an increasingly hostile world, lonely in an increasingly hostile world. And I don't know uh, if you've ever had those emotions where you felt lonely or you have felt 
uh, the world around you hostile towards you and what you believe and what you know to be true, what you know to be right. Um, and I don't know what trial you might be going through or trouble. It may be that you're mocked and negatively impacted for being a believer. It might be uh, you experience a loss. It might be that you're going through a trouble and trial of this world uh, that is uh, of the enemy. It's a health issue. It's a tension in an important relationship. It might be that your children are moving in a direction that you don't want. It could be an addiction that you're facing and battling. Life can be difficult, and so no matter what you're going through, we want to hear from God in a way that he would speak to us. And uh, friend, we want to be prepared that when we go through trouble or trial or persecution, that we know what God's word would say about that and what we can rely on. And into this scene steps 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, and then this word, We'll come back to this word, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctity, sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a, say these words, these two words with me, a living hope. Through the resurrection, so where, why is this a living hope? Where does it come from? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when Jesus Christ was born, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed. He was the most powerful man in the world. He was, in his own eyes, he was deity. And uh, the reason why people started saying, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. He reigned as as the emperor from 27 BC until AD 14, then he died. He's buried today in the mausoleum of Augustus in Rome, Italy. And you could go there today and see where the emperor lay. Now, when he died in 14 AD, Tiberius became the emperor of Rome. And on the day that Jesus was crucified on a cross by the power of Rome, it ultimately was an edict of Tiberius, who was emperor in that day. He ruled from 14 AD to 37 AD, and uh, they buried him. Uh, He's got a tomb in the same mausoleum, uh, the Augustus Mausoleum in Rome. Nero, the guy we just talked about for a little bit, died in 68 AD after years of brutal persecution of Christians. Uh, He took his own life. They put him in an adjacent tomb in this mausoleum. The emperors who ruled the world at Jesus' birth and Jesus' death and throughout the first sanctioned persecutions of Christians to those who refused to say Caesar is Lord, they said Jesus is Lord, Those emperors are buried in the same mausoleum. But the one they tried to kill early and the one they ultimately thought they crushed on that Good Friday rose up out of a borrowed tomb on Easter Sunday. And friend, you cannot travel to any place on earth today to see the place where Jesus' body lay because it is not there. He is risen. And emperors 
and warlords and kings and queens and czars and presidents and prime ministers and evil ruling people all have tombs and graves, but there is no grave that can hold the King of Kings. Christ Jesus is Lord. We have a living hope. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into, watch this, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So at the beginning of this passage, uh, we said, hey, look at this word. We'll come back to this word. Uh, it's the Greek word that's translated exiles. And it's translated many ways uh, depending on what uh, translation of the Bible you have. Uh, it's translated exiles, sojourners, aliens, strangers, foreigners. In other words, Peter is saying uh, you need to understand and remember uh, this is not your home. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a stranger. You're, you're different. Uh, you're an alien. This is not your final dwelling place. Like, Kansas City's not your home. Belton, Raymore, Peculiar, it's not heaven, everybody. All right, it's not your home. You're a heavenly creature serving a heavenly God, passing through a temporary world into an eternal dwelling place where one day you will be with God. And if this world is not your home, therefore you will be different from this world. And Peter is going to show us that if you're in the middle of a trial, because this is not your home, you have a different kind of faith, different kind of value in that trial. That when you're going through something incredibly different, because you're saved and called by God, and because you're called in this life of holiness, you're a different kind of husband, different kind of wife, different kind of, of parent. You're a different kind of worker, you're a different kind of person. And what I want to do today is just look at these words of this very powerful book, and we're going to look at faith in trials. Remember who Peter is writing to. And in verses 6 and 7, they would just appear shocking when you understand the context of this. That he says to these hurting, afraid, grieving, lost, uh, uh, not lost, but these Christians who are are in this environment where they're just strangers and aliens to it. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief. I mean, they're losing loved ones. Uh, they're facing fear. Uh, it's hard for them to live. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, and then he does a quick commentary on faith, that it's of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, but that your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now think about this. He says they've come to prove out the genuineness of your faith. So if there's such a thing as genuine faith, then what's the, what would be the opposite of that? What would the opposite be? If there's a genuine faith, there also must be a false, a false faith. And so let me show you three different kinds of false faith. If you're taking notes, uh, one of those would be what, what we'll call an inherited faith. 
This is where someone might say, uh, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, my grandparents are Christians or my parents are Christians and obviously I'm a Christian. Someone might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm an American. I'm a Christian or I'm not a Buddhist, not a Muslim, so I must be a Christian. And it's an inherited faith. And for example, we all know people who uh, grew up in the church, grew up in the faith, but as soon as they are independent or have some problems or need some money or have some money problems, someone asks them maybe a question about Christianity that they don't have answers for readily, they're all of a sudden not really sure if the faith is worth the investment, worth their time, worth putting it in. They genuinely don't know if they believe all this stuff. Now, an inherited faith can absolutely become a genuine faith. It happens every day. In fact, that's the hope, that's the goal, that raise up our kids and we'd inspire the people around us and that they uh, would make that, that faith their own and become genuine believers. Second type of false faith is a conditional faith. And so this can go both ways. Like some parents are in church because they believe it's a good thing for their kids, but as soon as their kids grow up, the parents aren't as passionate about their faith and they, they disappear from their faith community. Uh, or maybe this is one who would say, I believe in God as long as things go the right way. And so I'll serve, or I'll be in church, or I'll proclaim God as long as schedules line up and as long as it's convenient. And a conditional faith is revealed uh, when I'm going through something that says, well, man, I lost my job or my spouse has cancer. I can't believe God would let that happen. I don't know if I could believe in a God that would let that happen. And what you're revealing in that moment is you're saying, my faith is conditional on uh, my spouse not having cancer. My faith is conditional on me having a job. My faith is conditional on what those things that, uh, that you allow erode it. A third type of false faith is just simply a shallow faith Jesus talks about this in the story he told in Matthew chapter 13. He said, A sower or a farmer went out to sow some seeds, uh, to plant some seeds. And uh, in Matthew 13, verse 20, uh, the seed that fell on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once. And so like they heard the gospel, they receive it with joy. Praise God. But since they have no root... Uh, that joy, the faith, their belief, it just, it lasted for a short time. When, and then there's two different words here, when trouble, and so this is referring to just life, like when trouble came, like uh, life was hard, there's difficult, there's distractions, uh, there's uh, sickness, uh, there's money issues, uh, there's whatever that would bring trouble in someone's life, real trouble, real thing, or persecution, and this is referring to stuff that comes because you are a believer. So he's saying those who were uh, put down, uh, shamed, or, or even or facing physical persecution. So because they were a believer, that stuff was happening. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, the word they received, they quickly fall away. And I, I just believe that there's somebody listening to this this weekend that you need to hear this you're kind of in and you really need to take a step forward now before the devil takes you out because I do not want 
that a short time from now, like six months from now, you find yourself doubting, uh, lost in some addiction far from God because you didn't let the root go deep. And uh, you're far from God because you didn't, you didn't get strength from God's people. Friend, like church is not reading a book. Church is not improving yourself. The church is a group of baptized believers, the family and body of Christ, preparing for heaven or Christ's return. And we gather corporately to worship God. We strengthen one another. It matters to God. Jesus died for the church. He said to Peter, I will build my church. And it, church matters to Christ. It matters to us. And ultimately, so we don't have a shallow faith and lose our way. Now, I believe that God brought us here to build our faith. And if my faith is false or your faith is false, God can absolutely transform it into a genuine faith. And trials can reveal uh, the depth of our faith. And so if you're going through a difficult time, like some of you might say, my faith is being tested right now. Well, how is God going to use the test? How is God going to use the trial? Uh, two different ways. Number one, if you're taking notes, that is the trials reveal the kind of faith that you have. Do I have a false faith? Do I have a genuine faith? Do I have a faith that's growing? Do I have a faith that's declining? A trial reveals it. A faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. Let's look at it again, at it again 1 Peter 1.7. Let's read this out loud together. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. A faith that's been tested is one that can be trusted. In fact, that's what like Peter had been tested and even failed, but strengthened and regrouped, redeemed, made new. He's completely transformed. So if you back up maybe a few decades, almost a few decades from this, uh, recorded in Luke's gospel, you see Jesus talking to Peter. And remember, he changed uh, changed his name. It was Simon, changed it to Peter. And he's saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. In other words, uh, Satan wants to test you and remove you. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not, may not fail. So trials reveal your faith. And when you have turned back, in other words, Peter, you're not always going to get it right. But when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And so God used the trial that he went through after this to strengthen Peter. What was one of these big trials? Well, after this, one time Peter said to Jesus, Hey, if, if all the other disciples abandon you, I won't. Like he said this while the disciples are right there. Can you imagine? Like, I'll never uh, abandon you. Uh, I'll never forsake you. I mean, Peter's saying this to Jesus. John, he's going to let you down. I'm not going to let you down. Then what happened? Then not one time, not two times, but three times, Peter denies knowing Jesus, have anything to do with Jesus, denies. One of the times was to a little girl. <laughs> Says, no, no, I've never met him in my life. And then he sees the eyes of Jesus and his heart is just ripped out. 
And Jesus brutally dies on the cross for Peter's sins, for my sins, for your sins. And three days later, the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Like, you want to know who that was a really long three days for? Peter. But then Christ is risen. And then in John 21, you see this meaningful encounter that I was referring to earlier that I think if you were to sit down with Peter and say, tell me about the most amazing moment with Jesus, he would say, it's this time after he rose from the dead and after I denied him, after I promised that I, he, I wouldn't, he starts asking me, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? And he doesn't ask it once, he asks it Another time, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus asks him just enough times to offend him and get him to remember the three denials and say, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus gives him the assignment, says, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, my people, my sheep. And what happened shortly after that is Peter, the guy who messed up, was the guest preacher on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. He spent the rest of his life feeding God's people, feeding God's sheep. And we have First and Second Peter, the spiritual food, from him feeding the sheep. And God used a trial to strengthen Peter's faith, to change him into who he was becoming. And Peter was never the same. Because the faith that grew through that trial. Trials can reveal, and if you let them, they can strengthen your faith. Because the second thing that I hope you'll see is this, and that is that trials draw you closer to God. Trials can draw you closer to God. Peter tells us this uh, directly, and, and I want to have you just watch the power of the language here, the imagery that Peter uses. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith. And what's the end result of your faith? It's the salvation of your souls. Now remember who he's writing to. It looks so dark. He says, yet you rejoice with an inexpressible joy, a joy that can only come from heaven, a joy for which we don't have even like words in our human vocabulary to say it, to adequately describe this heavenly emotion that settles in our soul, a peace beyond human, the human ability to understand. That even though you're grieving, even though you're hurting, even though you're afraid, even though it looks dark, even though uh, they may be coming to get you, you could still have this glorious, inexpressible joy. And he says the reward for trusting him is the salvation of your souls. Now this is what we call the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news of who Jesus is. And what I hope you'll understand is the good news um, is, is not that God saves us from our trials. The good news is that God saves us from our sins. Now, ultimately, we will be in a place where uh, try, we'll be free from trials. But someone will say to you, well, uh, God will never put on you more than you can handle. You ever heard that? Somebody say that, God will never put more on you than you can handle. So that's a misinterpretation of a verse that says God will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. The Bible never ever says God won't put more on you than you can. 
I'm absolutely completely convinced God will put on you more (laughs) than you can handle (laughs) because you've got to depend on him. It teaches you to depend on him. And when you're hurting, you draw close to him. When you're desperate, you call on him. Because let's be honest, for those whose faith is false, in the moment of life that there's more on them than they can handle, they say, "Uh, fine, I don't need him. I'll just do life without him. And I'm convinced there are times when God will allow you to be weak because in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. And God will allow you to get to a place where you're so low that all you can do is look up to him and find him. And he will be good when you press into him. You can experience an inexpressible joy that's flowing from the salvation of your soul. And here's what I want us to understand today. If you're taking notes, it's this, that our faith is not in what we see. People are going to say, well, look at this, look at this. And how can you believe in God when you look at this over here and when you see what this is happening over here? Well, my faith is not in what we see. Our faith is in who God is, in who Jesus is. The gospel is based on who Christ is and what he has done for us. And at the same time, we hurt because it's real. At the same time, we have human fears because we're human. We have a supernatural faith. I have human fears. I have a supernatural faith. Human fears, but supernatural faith. So if you're here today and you're lonely and you're hurting, you are here because God loves you. And it's time to take a step toward him. When you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And God loves you so much that he brought you up today, woke you up today, brought you here to help you understand that you're not experiencing a trial because you are bad or because you did something wrong or because God does not love you, but he can actually use the trial to strengthen you like he strengthened Peter and he can use the trial to conform you into the image of his son who is not exempt from trial. And may you never be the same as you trust in him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that even in the middle of the most severe trials there is an inexpressible glorious joy for those who know you God in the middle of a trial may we experience the peace that goes beyond our human ability to understand that our faith is not in what we see our faith is in who you are God help us to trust you even though we don't see you we still trust you and Lord I pray for those who Uh, may realize today they have a false faith. It's not real. It's not sincere. It's not theirs. And I pray that they'd realize uh, here today uh, that you want their faith to be genuine and real, and it absolutely can. And they don't have to live life questioning or wondering whether or not it is real. Your word says that if we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if we confess that Jesus is Lord, that we will be saved. And friend, when you call on the name of Jesus, who is perfect in every way, who died and rose again, he will hear your prayer. He will forgive your sins. You can commit your life to him. You can be brave enough to follow him and obey him because he is for you. And so just pray, Heavenly Father, take my life, I give it to you. Jesus, save me, forgive me, 
God, I believe uh, that the cross is my way to God and to heaven and to knowing you. And I don't want the cross to be wasted on me. You said you died for my sin. I don't want the cross to be wasted on me. Lord, so forgive me. Make me new. Fill me with your spirit so I can know you, serve you, follow you. And help me to be different from this world, to have a different hope, a different faith and trial so I can completely live for you. My life is not my own. I give it to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.